good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. We will finish out our brief section and we'll look just specifically at verse 13 again at one of Paul's prayers as he's closing out this journey in the book of Romans. As you approach a a Pauline prayer, it is important to note that it is a Pauline prayer. Uh, Blake did an exposition a couple of weeks ago, jumping back up to verse 5, where it says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that this is the first of three prayers that the Apostle Paul will make. And in each of these three prayers, he makes an appeal to God in some particular way. So my hope today is to walk through this text, first and foremost, examining why it is that the Apostle Paul introduces his prayer under the, under the statement of, may the God of hope, really delving into what it means that God is the God of hope. And from there, we will look at the two requests that the Apostle makes. Then we will look at the means by which we actually can have them. We'll see the primary agent, namely the Holy Spirit, in which these come to fruition. And then the end, the conclusion, is hopefully a people of God that are filled to the brim with hope. Whenever we come to these Pauline prayers, there's really two things that we need to understand. First is that this is a prayer from an apostle, which means that as a general rule, we need to understand the apostle's primary purpose was to fight for the preservation of the church, to see the church mature, to see the church cherish Christ. But we also need to understand that as we read this in the words of the apostle Paul, we also understand that these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, to put those two things together, I think we can come to the conclusion that this is a great desire for the church, that the church would be filled with hope, that the church would have a lasting joy and peace, that the church would ultimately rest deeply in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I think that you have this not only from the pen of the apostle, but I do believe that you have this under the inspiration of the spirit, that this is a Holy Spirit inspired prayer for his people. And so we do well to pay close attention to it. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we'll make our way through verse 13. And I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 8, says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father, it would be foolish to come not praying what we see here. Father, may you fill us with all joy. 
May you cause our hearts to exult, to soar in the light of the gospel. Lord, may you fill us with this, with, with, with absolute and confident joy, immovable joy, not subject to circumstantial change, but instead anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you fill us with peace? Lord, a glorious rest in light of what Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, we know, we know based upon the revealed scriptures that we are at peace with you. How can we not have peace in our own souls? And so, Father, I pray that you would grant us this. And Lord, that we know that the only means by which these things can be communicated, the only means by which we can truly lay hold of these is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The natural man is not filled with immovable joy. He does not have peace, but by the Spirit of God, by his work in regeneration, and by him continuing to communicate these things to us through the ordinary means of grace, Lord, we may be filled. And Father, would you grant us a hope? a hope that gives our legs strength as we make our pilgrimage here below. Lord, would you use this hope to bring us safely home? Lord, give us in the midst of that hope a certainty, a thrill, a joy, a peace in the midst of knowing Christ, knowing that we have him and knowing that we will have him. And Lord, would you grant us this for your glory and for your name's sake? Lord, we ask it selfishly because we want to safely arrive at home. But Lord, we also ask it to your glory. Lord, that you would be faithful to preserve your people. We know you will. And so, Father, in the midst of you preserving, may we be glad benefactors of it. And may we go on boasting that our joy, that our peace, that our hope is only anchored in the cross of Christ. It's in his name and through his blood we pray. Amen. So as we turn our attention to our text in verse 13, I want to dive first and foremost into his introductory phrase. His introductory phrase, as he's addressing, much like he did in verse 5, in verse 5 he began, may the God of endurance and encouragement, and in verse 13 he pays special attention to hope, and he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Why is it saying that God is the God of hope? Whenever we come to texts like this, it's quick for us to assume, and I think we rightly assume that God is the God of hope, but I would like to take a brief moment to delve into why we can say that the God of the Scriptures is the God of hope. And there's really two ways that we can look at this. We can first and foremost look at it in the sense of Him in essence. Is He in essence a God worth hoping in? And then secondarily, how is it that we who are fallen creatures... How is it that we who are lesser, we who are finite, can comprehend the infinite in such a degree that we can anchor our hope in him? And so I want to delve this out for just a minute. I want to look at it from the perspective of, is this God, this God of the scriptures, is he worth you placing all of your hope in? And I do mean all. I don't mean pieces. I don't mean parts. Whenever we think about hope or joy or peace, we're so quick to place these in particular baskets. I would encourage you, let's not place them in various baskets. Let's place all our eggs in one. Let's understand that if God is who he says he is, we need not other options for hope. We need no other grounds for hope. We can be filled with hope based upon the one reality that this God who we serve, this God who is revealed in scripture is worth placing all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our joy, and all of our peace in. So we want to understand, is he worth you placing all of your hope in? And then secondarily, how is it that this hope that God is worthy of is communicated to us so that we can actually enjoy it here below? 
So what does it mean? Is this God worthy? Is this God truly the God of hope? And I want to give you five reasons I could go on and on and on in the ways in which this God is truly worth and truly rightly called the God of hope. But I just want to give you five this morning. First, he is the God of hope because he is good. There is something that we overlook often as we consider the God of the scriptures. There are things that we assume, and again, assume rightly, we almost instantly assume the goodness of God, and we should. But when we consider placing all of our hope and all of our confidence in him, how often do you meditate upon his goodness to you? Because the reality is that as you're placing your confidence and you're placing your hope in this God of the scriptures, then what you're saying is that you believe everything that he does is in essence good. Now, that's really easy to say in the midst of the best possible moments of your life that this God who you've placed all your hope in, that he's good. It's really easy to say that when everything is going swimmingly. But in reality, when you need to lay hold of and apprehend this truth and saying that he is the, the good God that I can place my hope in, is in the darkest possible moments of your life. In the darkest possible moments of your life, when all other secondary, frail, feeble hopes are obliterated, can you say? safely say that my hope is intact because God is good. He's good. He is caring not only for you in that particular moment, but in the midst of that singular moment of despair and pain and suffering, he is caring for his entire church and he is also caring for his own glory. This is the goodness of God on display. There is no moment more heinously void of hope than a concept of an arbitrary difficulty, a difficulty that doesn't have really any ground of hope, a difficulty that God is not involved in, a difficulty that God is not redeeming. Saints, we don't live in this world. God is actively redeeming every difficulty, every trial, and every tribulation. And so when you find yourself in the deepest possible suffering and anguish, you can go forth saying, I've believed on the God of hope who is good. I believed on the God of hope. So when I'm in anguish, he's good. And I can depend upon and trust on his goodness when I can't necessarily see it with my own eyes in the moment. We rejoice that he is truly the God of hope because he is good, because he is actively working with the best possible ends in mind, primarily his glory through your sanctification. What a wonderful hope we can have in this blessed God because he is good. And then we go further, not only is his goodness in view, we must also consider his merciful and gracious spirit. He is the God of hope because he is merciful and gracious. Saints, if we turn back into Exodus 34, 6 and 7 again, as we've considered that verse in recent days, have you ever considered the hopeless estate we would have if God is not the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Let me tell you something. If God is not merciful and gracious, we have no grounds for hope, period. I care not where you place it. It does not matter how much confidence you have in anything because the reality is that this God is the judge of all the earth. And if he has no mercy and grace, if he himself is not merciful and gracious, then there's not an ounce of hope that we should have. But we understand through the pages of Holy Scripture through the experience of the church, and we understand even through the book that we have been walking through for the past few years, that he is abounding in mercy and grace. The reality is that he has come to relieve our fallen condition. This concept of mercy is to not give someone something that they deserve, saints. How true is it that this God is so merciful? How is it that any of us are still breathing today? It is by his mercy 
In his good mercy, he has withheld the just consequence for our sin. Throughout the entirety of redemptive history, you see him demonstrate this mercy by expressing forbearance to those who are enemies of God. What a great ground of hope that he is merciful to us, that he is come to relieve our fallen condition. And then further, not only is he merciful to us, he abounds in grace. Now, perhaps it is that you think often of his mercy that he has not given you what you truly deserve. That is eternal separation from him. Not only eternal separation from him, but also enduring the entire amount of his wrath throughout eternity. That is truly what we deserve. And in the midst of his mercy, he withholds that. But in light of the fullness of his grace, we see him place it on his beloved son so that you might receive the merit of that beloved son. This is grace. Oftentimes we preach a gospel that is all mercy and no grace. Saints, the reality is that it is not just as though your sins have been forgiven. It's that God in his infinite grace has given you all the riches of heaven and his son. And he has clothed you with that perfect cloak of righteousness. How can I not hope? I know the God who is mercy and grace. And he has extended that toward me. I do not fret or fear as I make my way through this life or consider the final day that I make my way toward with every breath. No, because I know the God of hope who is filled, who is mercy and grace itself. Why is he worthy to be called the God of hope? Because he is good, because he is merciful and gracious. And then thirdly, he is faithful. This word, Faithful is often robbed of its substance because we, we use it to describe someone who is, who is generally faithful. But when we speak of the God of the scriptures, he is perfectly faithful. And, and even then, like to describe the level of fidelity that God has to himself, to his own glory, and then because of those two, to his people, I, I fail to, to demonstrate, frankly, the precision that God has in delivering each and every one of his promises. I mean, have you considered that for every single soul that has ever perished, God has been faithful, perfectly faithful in judgment? Not once has he skewed, not once has he abandoned justice, and not once has he abandoned his grace and his mercy, but in the midst of his fidelity, he honors both in the midst of perfect righteous judgment. Or what about the promises of God that we have been considering over the past few months? Has he not delivered on each and every promise? Has he not made clear that the word of God does not fail, that it always accomplishes a purpose, that it never returns void? The intentions that God has in his promises, he always brings these intentions to fruition. He has proven faithful time and time and time again. And what is most interesting about him is he lays out promises with the intention of demonstrating his own faithfulness. God did not need to promise that Jesus would come in the particular way that he did. Why did he do it? To demonstrate the trustworthiness of God. He demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his power in fulfilling all of his promises. This is the perfectly faithful God. He is faithful to every promise, which means, Christian, that you don't have to fret as you're considering the final judgment. If he has promised you that if you've called on my name, if you've repented and believed the gospel, if Christ is in you, then you will dwell forever with him. Take him at his word. He is faithful. It is a tragedy that so many wrestle to and fro with, will he save me on the last day? He said that he would. 
That is more than sufficient. And if you need more, then look at the fulfillment of his promises. Christ condescended to dwell among us. Not only did Christ condescend, he was nailed to a tree to make sure that the satisfactory sacrifice was laid out before the fire that you might be brought safely home. Do not question God's faithfulness. If it were ever to be put into question, it would be at the day of the incarnation. And yet there was the blessed son. Not only was he there, but we see him crucified to a tree. How easy is it for us to understand, for us to believe the faithfulness of God when we see it demonstrated so perfectly in the beloved son. And then perhaps a bit further, one that we might not often meditate on enough is that he is the God of hope because he is immutable. Immutable means unchangeable. We are all infinitely subject to change. And he has never once changed. Never once. Don't buy the lies of the open theist that say that he is learning, that he is responding. No, no, no. That's no God of the scriptures. The God of the scriptures has never changed, moved, altered, not once. And the reason this is a ground for confidence, saints, is first and foremost, you were elect before the foundation of the world. And if you were elect before the foundation of the world, perhaps it is that you would think to yourself, ah, but now that he sees me in real time, perhaps it is that he would reject you. Do you question the infinite knowledge of God? Do you not think he knew you just as well in eternity past as he knows you now? And then further, do you think that he's subject to whims? Your election was not based on your doings. Why would it change now? Your election was based upon the immutable goodwill of the Father. And as that is the grounds of our confidence, we know that his goodness, his mercy and grace, his faithfulness are not subject to alteration. They are perfect attributes that know no shift or change. He is forever the perfectly good, merciful, gracious, faithful God. And in that we can trust further, in that we can hope. Because hear me, saints, if he is not immutable, if he is not unchangeable, then I would encourage you to abandon all hope in this God today. For he may change tomorrow. But we know he is unchangeable. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, what ground of confidence. When he accepted the sacrifice of Christ 2,000 years ago, I do not have to worry if he will reject it tomorrow. He has received it. He has accepted it. It has been demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. And then what is perhaps first and foremost in view from our text today is this. He is the God of hope because he is the sovereign king. Listen to what 12 says. And again, Isaiah says the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises, speaking of his resurrection, to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. What are the Gentiles hoping in in the midst of this text? It is not just the satisfactory sacrifice. It's not just the promises of God making their way to him. It's not just that they too will have this perfect community of the church rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. But it's the kingship of Christ. It's the kingship of our God. He is the God of hope, saints, because he is the sovereign king. And, and, and I don't want to degrade the term sovereign in this moment. I want to make it abundantly clear that the reason that we can have hope in this God is because he is not out of control. He is in perfect control. There is not a molecule on the universe over which he does not have perfect authority. And every single one of them bows to his command. There is nothing outside of his control. And in the midst of the knowledge of knowing there is not a single thing outside of his control, then saints, I can rest and I can hope in this perfect God. 
If he is not perfect, if he is not sovereign over all things, then friends, I know not whether tomorrow will come for the rogue Adam might bring it all to an end. But since there is not one molecule in which, in which the, that does not bow to him, then we know with absolute confidence that everything that he said will ultimately come to fruition. He is the ruling and reigning king. This is the God of whom we say he is the God of hope. Now, here is what I find to be so tragic is so many confess a hope in a lesser God. They say, ah, yes, we believe the scriptures, but we believe that God has erred in the past. Let me tell you, that's not a God worth hoping in. Or you say, ah, we see him change from the old to new. Listen, he's not a God worth hoping in. What we understand when we confess that we believe in the God of hope, we say we have apprehended, we have taken in and enjoy the God of the scriptures. We believe that he is worthy of placing all of our hope in. A lesser God will not do. A lesser God cannot comfort you in the midst of your trials and tribulations because you got there by accident and he's merely responding. A lesser God cannot comfort you in the midst of your sin because perhaps it is that he might change in the moment and not be perfectly faithful to his judgments. A lesser God offers you no comfort, saints. And oftentimes, if I could be somewhat precise, oftentimes when you lack hope in the world, it's because you're not believing the right things about our God. You're believing in a lesser God. You're believing one that is not perfectly good, that is not merciful and gracious, that is not faithful or immutable, or one that is not the sovereign king of the universe. You look out at the world and you think to yourself, what is happening, saints? We know what's happening. We say God and his providence is laying out the nations. And we unapologetically walk through any trial, tribulation, or blessing with hope, knowing that the king is reigning. Any lesser God will leave you hopeless. But not only do we need to understand that he is the God of hope, not only do we need to understand that any lesser God won't do, we also need to understand the ways in which God communicates this hope to us. And the first, the one that is most normatively assumed or perhaps overlooked is that God has communicated that hope to us through his glorious self-disclosure. He did not have to disclose himself. He's the God of hope in essence, based upon the brief things that we have laid out. But saints, one of the most beautiful things that we overlook, that we ignore, or that we simply take for granted is that God in his infinite grace disclosed himself to us. Do you think your feeble eyes could have laid hold of him if he did not desire it? No. He revealed himself. He's revealed himself through creation. Yes, he's revealed himself through the scriptures, but he has also revealed himself through his son. And as we see him, as we behold him, then that hope that it flows from that perfect God is born in us. And we are able to depend upon him, to rejoice in him, to actually lay hold of the object and ground of our hope. So first, God has communicated that hope to us through his glorious self-disclosure. But secondarily, God has brought us the great grounds of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is there is a means by which there is a fountain that flows forth his mercy and grace. And it is only through the gospel of his beloved son. 
In the midst of this, laying hold of the gospel truly does grant us a ground of hope because the gospel has been promised, the gospel has been fulfilled, and the gospel will not change from this point forevermore, saints. It is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And since it is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, I do not fret. I am not concerned that my hope will diminish because it's not based upon me. It's based upon the perfect gospel of God. Since it's based upon the perfect gospel of God, I find that my feet are rather well planted, safe and secure. I have grounds for hope because God has provided a perfect gospel. If I could maybe jump our attention back to Genesis for just a moment. How much hope did Adam have as he rested in the garden, waiting in that period of time? What was Adam's hope? Adam's hope was that he would not sin and trespass against God, that he would not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me tell you something, saints, that is a feeble ground. Because Adam, unlike Christ, was not perfect. He was perfect in a sense, but he was able to sin. Saints, the reality is that if it's based upon man, you will always go forth stumbling. If it's based upon God, if it's based upon Christ, then we know that our feet are perfectly planted on ground that will not give way. We have great grounds for hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, what is in view is not only the present hope, but the future hope. He has given us ground for hope on the last day. How many of you think about the last day and wonder, will I go into that blessed place? Perhaps it is that you think of that day and you think of the moment of judgment and you pause and you think, will I be found faithful on that day? And you wonder and your heart burns within you and you've got some tightness of chest as you consider such a thing. You are not a fool to do that because it is a gravitous situation. But saints, lay hold of your second ground of hope. The gospel is unchangeable. Not only is the gospel unchangeable, the gospel gives us the great hope that we should have on the last day. Remember, saints, you do not go in because of what you have done. You go in because of what Christ has accomplished. And if you go in because of what Christ has accomplished, and if you believe this deeply within your soul, then you do not wait for judgment on the last day. You don't wait for judgment. You're not awaiting trial. You're not awaiting execution. You're hoping for the last day. You're longing for the day of glory. We speak of this day. It's laid out throughout the entirety of scriptures, the day of glory and the day of dread. Saints, for you, we hope for the day of glory when Christ will come and bring us back to him. We do not wait. We hope. And we hope first and foremost in the God of hope and the gospel of that God. And we long, long saints, do not let your flesh, the world, the enemy steal your joy from you. Hope for the last day when you will see him. Now, in the midst of this, this is his audience. He's focusing this prayer to the God of hope. And then there are two primary requests that are laid out. The first request is that we be filled with all joy. The second request is that we be filled with peace. So he goes to the God of hope praying that the saints, the church will be filled with all joy and be filled with all peace. And the very first thing I want to break down briefly is that first simple phrase. If you look at verse 13, may the God of hope fill you. Now, I don't want to run past this too quickly because oftentimes we read the word fill and we think about it somewhat in a, in a frail way where 
You're a cup that has a hole in the bottom and there's just this constant filling, this need of always being poured into a little bit more. That's not ultimately the prayer. The prayer is that you be complete, that you be made whole and that you be made whole in these two particular things. That you be made whole in joy, that you be made whole in peace. That is to say that joy and peace are not secondary markers of the Christian life. They are primary markers and they are not to be tossed to and fro by every circumstance that comes your way. Peace and joy are meant to mark the Christian life in in a generally consistent way. We should be a joyful people and we should be a peaceful people. So from there, we need to ask the question, what does joy mean? I have looked up more definitions of joy than I care to admit. So I came up with my own. What does joy mean? Now, I'm going to say a word here, and you might instantly shrink back because we don't normally use this word, but I am convinced that this is the only way that we can appropriately describe joy. Christian joy is the feeling prompted. It is emotive is what I'm saying. There is something emotive about this expression, this enjoyment, for lack of better terms, of joy. Christian joy is the feeling prompted by God's good pleasure upon you brought about by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if I could summarize it in a picture form, the joy of the Christian is an enjoyment of the warmth of God's smile upon you. Now, perhaps it is that you are thinking, well, God, smile upon me. What a lofty thought. I can't even fathom such a thing. But the reality is that as we consider the Christian life, the Christian life is most normatively under the smile of God, under his warm reception, under his good favor. As a matter of fact, a part of the beauty of the gospel is you go from being his enemy to being under his good favor. That you are under the smile of God. And as you are under the smile of God, there is an appropriate feeling. There is an appropriate emotive response to our rejoicing in and treasuring the warmth of God's smile upon our souls. So what does it look like then to be filled with joy? I want to give really three ways. First, to be filled with joy is first and foremost to apprehend the truths of the gospel and to live in that light. I don't want to make joy something divorced from gospel because it's not. You can't have it apart from gospel. The only means by which we can lay hold of and enjoy the Christian's joy is by believing and understanding the gospel of Christ. If you do not understand the depth of love that's demonstrated in the gospel, you will not have appropriate joy. If you do not understand the depths of sin that Christ died for for you, then you will not have appropriate joy. If you don't understand the depths of righteousness that Christ merited and gave to you, then you will not have appropriate joy. So often, Christian, perhaps it is that you think, I don't have a deep joy. My question would be, how deeply do you understand the gospel? How deeply do you understand and savor Jesus? The reality is that the Christian's joy is found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't find it there, you have a pseudo joy. You have a joy that is the brief moment of Christmas morning and quickly fades away day two. True joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is immutable. It is unchangeable. It is something that anchors itself in the soul when we understand that God's good pleasure rests on us. Secondly, to be filled with joy is to treasure as paramount him who is the chief of all joy. I've been working through this all week, trying to understand how joy both 
is born in the soul and then how it finds itself multiplying. Because perhaps it is that you, in moments of your life, find there's a depth of joy in you, right? You, you feel this great warmth of God's smile. And then perhaps it is that you find that it waxes and it wanes. And I would say that most normatively, it waxes and wanes with our active cherishing of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go to secondary substances to provide true and lasting joy, it's no surprise that as we go to secondary substances for joy, that our joy fades because you've gone to a lesser fountain. But the reality is that joy is birthed in the soul at conversion. You're able to see Christ, to see him as he is. You understand the gospel. And as you understand the gospel, you've been made alive by the spirit and you see Christ for who he is. And there's only one response, appropriate response to that. And that's sheer joy at the beauty of the beloved son. And in the midst of that, you find great joy. You find enjoyment. Your face lights up. Every time I consider this moment, I think of the doors opening at the back of a wedding of a wedding, and having the bride walk forward. Everyone wants to see the bride, but secondarily, everyone wants to see the groom's face. Why? Because he's in deep delight. And saints, this is what it means to have Christian joy. It's deep delight, not in circumstances or secondary things, but deep joy in Christ. And joy in Christ means that we treasure him means that we have our hands upon him. And if anything else would interrupt such sweet fellowship, we cast it aside and watch it burn with joy for anything that would hinder our fellowship with the one that we chiefly cherish will rob us of our joy. And it's almost like this wonderful, glorious circle that yes, to be filled with joy is to apprehend the truths of the gospel. Further to be filled with joy is to treasure as paramount him who is the chief of all joy, namely Jesus Christ. And then finally, to be filled with joy is to enjoy him who you chiefly treasure. I treasure him because he's shown himself to be the anchor and the source of all true joy. And I treasure him, delight in him. And as I treasure, as I delight in him, more joy erupts within my soul because I'm, I'm understanding him more deeply. I'm understanding the sweetness of that fellowship. How often, or perhaps even in your immaturity, you can remember these moments where you longed for a bit of comfort, a bit of peace, a bit of joy in the midst of difficulty, and, and you discovered on the other end of your lack of joy that you were clinging on to a lesser pleasure. Saints, let me tell you something. If you're clinging on to Christ, you will never want for joy. It's anchored in Him. It's found in Him exclusively. Certainly there are secondary joys, but hear me, every single one, and I mean the best one you can think of, every single one of them are exhaustible. Every one. What will thrill you? What will give you that wonderful feeling of the warm smile of God throughout all eternity? Saints, it won't be your spouse. It won't be your children. It won't be your labor. It won't be anything that you can find here below other than fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's most wonderful about that. That joy is eternal. One of the sweetest phrases in scripture is in the parables where Jesus says, enter into your master's joy. This is what we long for. This is what we desire. And so to be filled with joy means to apprehend the truths of Scripture, to lay hold of them and to lay hold of Christ, draw him near, treasure him deeply and grow in joy as you treasure him. Now, why pray that we be filled with all joy? We pray to be filled with all joy because the flesh 
the world and the enemy would have us believe lies and treasure lesser things. I do not pretend as if there is no external temptation to rob you of joy. I would actually argue that one of the greatest tactics of the enemy in the flesh is to convince you that you're cherishing Christ while you're treasuring something lesser and then ask, where is my joy? Saints, it is clear that we go after, because we are fickle and frail, we go after lesser things. If you find yourself wanting for joy, do a quick assessment of what you are treasuring. If you are treasuring lesser things, do not be surprised that you have been granted a lesser joy. If you are not believing the truths of the gospel, then do not be surprised that you have a lesser, more inconsistent joy. But secondly, because our joy is prone to wax and wane with our circumstances. I understand that there are difficulties, there are trials, but I'll be honest with you. It is normally the saint in the midst of difficulty and trial that seems to maintain some form of joy because everything else has been perhaps involuntarily snatched from them. All they have is Christ. And isn't it interesting that in that moment, we often look at those saints and we say, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they endure such difficulty. I don't know how they're walking through this with such grace. Hear me, saints. It's because they're treasuring Christ in the midst of it. It's because they're delighting in him and in the midst of their suffering, they have immovable joy. It is when we are at our richest and wealthiest. It is when we can lay hold of boundless sources of hope that we are quick to take our hand off the Lord Jesus Christ and then we are found wanting in the depths of our soul. No saints, it matters not what riches come our way. We cast them all aside. We lay hold of Christ and we say, this is the fountain of joy. And everything else, we quote the apostle Paul, is rubbish. Finally, because we believe, why pray that we be filled with joy? Because we believe we have merited God's displeasure and frown. I have news for you. You have merited God's displeasure and frown. And I would go ahead and encourage you to confess such things. Confess them out loud, but do not stop the sentence. The reality is that you have merited for yourself God's displeasure and God's frown. Never, never should God's smile fall upon a sinner. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that I know his smile falls upon me. So we affirm, and we affirm loudly and boldly that we have merited God's displeasure and frown, but we will go further and say, but God's smile and good pleasure is not based upon our merits, but Christ's. Perhaps it is that in the midst of your sinning, you say, oh, I have the frown of God upon me. Saints, be reminded of the gospel in the midst of those moments. Rejoice that yes, you have merited for yourself condemnation, wrath, and fury, and yet the smile of God falls upon you. Know these things, profess them, make it clear to your own soul. Say it out loud so that everyone knows that you have merited God's wrath and fury, and yet by the beauty of the gospel, God's good pleasure rests upon you. Then there is no reason to have any hesitation in that profession. Then it is robbed of its power when you say that, no, I have not merited for myself God's good pleasure. That's irrelevant. The reality is that Christ has. And if Christ has, then his good pleasure is given to you. Now from there, we turn to peace. We'll speed up a bit. What does peace mean? I wanna make this clear. There's peace in the sense that we have been brought peace by 
the Lord's finished work on the cross, meaning that we have peace with God now. We are no longer at enmity with him. There's nothing that separates us from our great God and King. The separation has been conquered and we have been brought near through the blood of his son. That is one form of peace that we speak of, but there is a secondary peace that primarily flows from that. And that is the peace that we are speaking of in this text. And I'm gonna give you the same, give the same basic structure here. I wanna give you a definition of this. Peace here is a restful certainty of joy-filled fellowship with God in the present and in the age to come. I can't get away in regard to peace of a, of a certainty. There is a rest that is prompted from knowing that I'm not at enmity with God any longer. And since I'm not at enmity with God any longer, I am given a ground for clear and safe resting and and that resting flows into every other area of my life. So peace defined as this, a restful certainty of joy-filled fellowship with God in the present and in the age to come. Now, what does it look like then to be filled with peace? Being filled with peace rejects accusations of enmity with God because of the gospel. I will not hear them. I will not hear them. The reality is that if you have been brought into right relationship with God through the finished work of Christ, there is no enmity between you and your God, saints. There is nothing that bars you entrance. You are a beloved son or daughter. There is no enmity. It's an incredible thing to consider that even in the moment that I have sinned and I instantly go to him, perhaps it is, let's say there's a span of about 36 seconds from my sin and going to God. Even in the midst of that, I am not at enmity with him. It is an incredible reality that even though I am a sinner and even though on the other side of my conversion, I still fall and I still sin, I am never at enmity with my God because Christ's work is sufficient. He has provided a perfect peace for us. So we are no longer at enmity and we recognize and understand that and we should, saints, reject the concept of enmity with God if we be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not my enemy. He is my father. Being filled with peace consistently goes to God without fear of rejection. There is ground for our coming to him. It is a shame, Christian, that we so rarely make our way to the throne room of grace. And I know and I have experienced such things where my own failings would prevent me from entering, that my own sinning would prevent me from going to God with confidence. Saints, there is never ground for you to hesitate to go to your father. There's never ground. You are no longer enmity. Peace with God has been provided. And since that is the case, I know that I am at rest and have right to fellowship with him in a joy-filled way. I can go to the Father and I can go to the Father with confidence because I bear his sonship. Further, being filled with peace places a soul at rest and aims for peace in earthly relations. Now, this is so important because the basic premise here is that I was at enmity with God. And as I was at enmity with God, God in his infinite grace condescends to create peace between him and me so that I might enjoy him and that I might fellowship with him appropriately. One who is at rest, one who is at peace does not then go forth making war against his brothers. There is a response to this peace. There is an enjoyment of this peace. And in the midst of an enjoyment of this peace, there is a desire to preserve and to promote this peace. And then lastly, being filled with peace gives rest even amidst spiritual warfare. Saints, you can be at war all around you. As a matter of fact, I would say one of the primary reasons this prayer is prayed is because we are ever constantly at warfare all around us. 
Not only are we ever constantly at war all around us, we are often at war within us. Romans 7 screams in the midst of this. I'm waging war against this inner man, this old man who should be dead altogether. And oh, how I look forward to the day when he will be taken off and I will be removed from this body of flesh. But until that day, I am at war. And in the midst of me being at war, I need to be reminded that I am actually at peace, that God has granted me a perfect peace in his beloved son, that I have a right to rest in joyful anticipation and even present enjoyment of fellowship with him. I am at peace. Now, to give you a few reasons why this is prayed. First, because it is a matter of the kingdom. If you jump over really quickly, To verse 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Both of these two things are anchored in the reality that these are matters of the kingdom. Joy and peace are matters of the kingdom. Secondly, because we still live in a state of internal war with the old man, you're still waging that war, as I just mentioned. Thirdly, we live at war with the world around us. This is not our home. We are exiles and aliens, and the world knows that full well as they wage war against us. And then finally, because we often fail to apprehend the anchor of our peace, that is peace with God through the gospel of Jesus. When you feel as though you are at enmity with God, saints, preach the gospel to yourself. Be reminded that there truly has been reconciliation. And in the midst of that reconciliation, you not only have that perfect peace provided you through justification, you have right to enjoy it here below. Now, how is it that these two things can come to fruition in the life of the Christian? Notice what the text says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Paul goes nowhere else. He goes to this center anchor in believing. Now, I think that leads us to ask the question, what particularly are we believing in? Uh, Here, especially around this time of year, people just say the word believe as if it's substantive. It's not substantive. Faith is only as strong as its object and believe itself has no real strength whatsoever. Now, believing upon perhaps the God of hope all of a sudden becomes wildly substantial. Believing upon the gospel of God gives us great hope and confidence. But further, let's let's read what Hebrews 11 says. What do we believe in? What is our faith anchored in? Hebrews 11, one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the the conviction of things not seen. But but we miss verse six often in the midst of this conversation on faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. But listen to this. For whoever would draw near to God must believe first that he exists, meaning that we believe that the God of hope is worthy of our hope, that this God of the scriptures is laid out clearly. He is, he truly is, he exists. And secondarily, he rewards those who seek him. This is what it means to believe saints. It means that we believe that God is and we also believe that all of his promises will actually come to fruition. We believe that he rewards those who seek him. This is what it means to truly believe. And as we are believing these things, as we are having confidence and resolve in our understanding of these, then joy and peace tend to erupt from belief in the God of hope. 
Do not think for a moment that joy and that peace can come from any other fountain. It cannot come from any other fountain. My guess is you've exhausted multiple fountains by now and found that they truly do all run out. But here's what I assure you. If you are believing on the God who is and the God who rewards those who seek him, you will have joy and peace in this world. And not only will you have it in this world, you will have it in the world to come because your belief is in one who is in himself eternal. It is not as though his promises will fail and fade when you draw your last breath. As a matter of fact, they become all the more real. And so we go to this fountain. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he exists. We believe he rewards those who seek him. And then there is an agent in the midst of all of this. How is it then that these things come to fruition? How is it that joy and peace, as Paul is praying for it, as Paul's desiring it for the church, as the Spirit is inspiring that we have joy and peace, how is it that these things can come to fruition? Because the reality is that even your believing does not originate with you. As you think to yourself, ah, I want more joy, I want more peace, and then you think to yourself, ah, well, I'll believe harder. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You think that you're going to muster up by your own might the ability to have joy in Christ? No man has ever mustered up joy in Christ. The natural man is at enmity with God. The natural man hates God. The natural man's joy, if we can even use that terminology, is in everything contra this God. And as you lay this out, as we consider, Paul instantly turns and says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Saints, the natural man doesn't muster up joy in Christ. The natural man doesn't make peace with God. Imagine, imagine. You think to yourself, ah, I would like more peace with God. You traipse into the throne room of grace and you say, this is all that I have done. You know the refrain. Away with you, you evildoer. I never knew you. No natural man has ever made peace with God. God makes peace with sinners. And he communicates that through the promised Holy Spirit. Natural man doesn't muster up joy. Natural man does not go forth striving for peace with God. He's at enmity with God. He hates God. He, everything, every hateful thought, every rejection, every suppression is directed toward the God who is and rewards those who seek him. So how then do we come to, to attain joy? We come, we come to attain joy only through the power of the Holy Spirit who births joy in the Christian. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we first come to take joy in Christ and thus treasure him. You were at enmity and a God hater. And then on the other side of the work of the Holy Spirit, you see the Lord Jesus Christ who you once despised and you say, there is the fountain of all joy. That is born only through the Holy Spirit of God who gives you eyes to see appropriately in the midst of your absolute spiritual blindness. You see him, you rejoice in him, you treasure him. And then further, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that in our treasuring of Christ, we grow in our enjoyment of him. And thus our joy itself multiplies in the midst of triumph or tragedy. In the midst of you savoring him. And this is really the, the anticipate, the hope that I could maybe lay out is that your joy, though permanent and anchored in, in an immutable reality, is not stagnant meaning that it has ability to grow, that you have by the power of the Spirit, the, the possibility of being filled with joy. But let me tell you something. There is no filling of joy apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think I don't have enough joy in my life, hear me. 
How often are you treasuring Christ actively? How often are you laying hold of him? As you're saying, I want to understand the gospel a little bit more. I want to see the beauty of Christ in a new way. I want to go to the scriptures and I want to dive in and I want to see beauty. Then saints, joy will multiply in your soul, but do not think it will come through a secondary source. It only comes through the Son. Further, the power of the Holy Spirit communicates peace to us. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The anchor of our rest is the gospel of God. How does the gospel of God come to us? It comes to us through the word of Christ and it comes to us through the power of the Spirit to quicken us so that we might receive it with joy. But not only does it come to us in this way, the peace supplied by the Holy Spirit is comfort concerning that peace by which we rest in the midst of suffering and blessing. Philippians 4, 7 is what comes to mind. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Again, it's not making reference to the peace purchased. It's making reference to what's done in the soul of the Christian to place him at rest in the midst of absolute tragedy. Listen to what it says again, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How is it that this peace is communicated to us? This peace is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit, bringing and birthing and multiplying and maturing that peace in our own souls. And so we depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. But then lastly, the final, final word is this conclusion so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is really his primary desire. His primary desire is in the midst of joy and peace, the, the, through believing and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we might be a people who abound, abound in hope. So what does it mean to abound in hope? Abounding in hope is the consistent and unconquerable certainty that all the promises of God will come to fruition. It means that when you're reading Hebrews eleven six and you're hearing the statement of believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, is to understand that all of those will actually come to fruition. Immovable, unconquerable. Our hope is not like the world's hope. They have stolen the word from us. Hope is a certainty. It is not, oh, I certainly hope that it doesn't rain or I hope there isn't traffic on the road. Hope in the biblical sense is an absolute certainty that all of God's promises will come to fruition, that they will come to pass, that we will actually attain the final goal. So how then do we abound in hope? I want to give you really just a couple of ways. First, we abound in hope by believing in the God of hope, not a lesser God. If you cannot abound in hope, my first question is, are you believing in the God of the scriptures? Because let me tell you something, the God of the scriptures is worthy of you placing all of your hope in. I would plead with you, I would urge you, do not place an ounce of hope in a secondary basket. Place it all upon the Lord Jesus Christ his finished work, the deliverance of all of his promises, because every single one of those will come to fruition. And hear me, the hope of God does not disappoint. It will not put you to shame. So we abound in hope by believing in the God of hope, not a lesser God. We abound in hope by being filled with the joy only found in treasuring Jesus Christ, not lesser pleasures. If you want to abound in hope, treasure the fountain of all hope. Lay hold of Jesus Christ. And as you lay hold of him, demand in your own soul that he will be my greatest treasure. Put on blinders and say, I will fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith. I will toss away anything that would hinder me. I will gladly watch any and every idol burn so that I 
I can treasure Christ more deeply. So we abound in hope by being filled with the joy only found in treasuring Christ. We abound in hope by knowing we have peace with God and resting in all that provided peace. A true lasting rest, knowing I am not at enmity. I am not, I am not to be cast away from God. No, I have been brought near through the finished work of Christ. And then lastly, we abound in hope by dependence upon the Holy Spirit supplying all of the above. This is not something that's within our power. Do you know why Paul prays it? Because it's not within our power. Paul prays it, seeks the Lord, seeks the God of hope and prays that the Holy Spirit of God would do all of this in our souls. Saints, I'm pleading with you. Long for these things enough to go to prayer about it. Long to have joy and hope and comfort and rest and peace enough to go and seek the God of hope that you might have it. Wrestle with him as Jacob did. Lay hold of him and said, give me this great joy. Calls me to treasure Christ more deeply. Calls me to delight in him. Calls me to understand the peace that has been provided for me through the Lord Jesus Christ and to truly rest in those. Go and pray to the God of hope that he would birth these things in you. Because saints, these are not to be momentary marks. These are, these are to be the permanent marks of the Christian that you would be filled filled to the brim with joy and peace that you might abound in hope. And if you want strength for your legs as you pilgrimage here below, as you're making your way to that celestial city, you know what you need? You need joy that comes through Christ, peace that comes through Christ, that you might have hope that is only found in Christ. Let's pray together.